0: We're going to talk about food. Of course. If you've been around a long time, you know that if I'm able to, I will work food into every message I possibly can. And the reason, one of the reasons why is I love to eat. How many of you love to eat? How many of you are ready at almost any time to eat? Someone's like, hey, you hungry? And you're like, what does that have to do with it? (laughs) Right? Of course I'm hungry. Some people say I live to eat and I eat to live. Uh, I would generally say that about my life. And I just want to say this, that I am blessed to have a wife that doesn't think the same about food as I am, as I do. And it probably keeps me from being 500 pounds. Because she eats when she's hungry and I don't see what hunger has to do with it. I like all kinds of food. I like all kinds of tastes, but if you are to ask me to really boil it down, what do I really like? I like the junk. I like the fatty foods. I like the sweet foods. I like the stuff you're just not supposed to eat. You know what I'm saying? But the problem is this. If you put garbage in, you get garbage out. Like, I can tell you the difference. If I want to come home and I want to be fully engaged with my family, I can't come home and eat five slices of pizza and, and a few chicken wings. Because what happens is I get real sleepy and I don't want to get out of, I want to find a chair and just sit in the chair. You know what I'm talking about? But if you eat something that fuels your body, something that's a little bit lighter, something that maybe have, has more healthy nutrients in it, you actually might have a little bit more energy to be fully involved with your family in the evening. You eat bad stuff, you get bad results. I was reading this week about the 80-20 rule. That 80% of our health is, revolves around what we eat, and 20% revolves around how much we move. Another way to say that is, you can't out-exercise a bad diet. There should be some more, I know people in this room, there should be some more amens to that, right? You can't outwork thank you, Faith, thank you, Josh. You can't outwork a bad diet. How many of you have, no, let's just say it this way, how many of you know someone that all day long they eat super healthy? Like, they're drinking that nasty green smoothie in the morning. Like, they're eating healthy protein and a salad at lunch. You know, dinner is, is, is really well balanced. And then, like, 11 o'clock rolls around and they just binge on Doritos. How many of you know someone like that? Don't, do you just know someone like that? The truth is this. It doesn't count to eat good all day if you binge on Doritos at night. Right? It's not like the good food outbalances the bad food. When you take that bad garbage food in, you're going to get bad garbage results. Don't worry, this is not a sermon to get you on a diet. Scripture does have a lot to say about food. All of human history and the recorded history of Scripture revolves around humans' interaction with food. Think about it this way. In the very beginning, God put Adam and Eve in the garden, He provided everything that they needed to eat. He said, "Eat anything that you want, except don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." I remember one time being really bored in a meeting, and I won't tell you who the meeting was with but I remember being really bored in the meeting, and I just started to outline a book on the theology of food. And before I knew it, within about a half an hour, I had 37 chapters named. Just by going through scripture and talking about the way that human beings interact with food. And the way God talks about food and how food has so much to do with our lives. How many of you would buy or read it? Should I write the book on the theology of food? Would it have to include recipes? Okay. How much would you be willing to pay for it? No, I'm just kidding. Um, The book of, if you think about it, right in the beginning, food. Right at the end, there's food. In the book of Revelation, we have this incredible scripture. I love chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. There's so much in it. I've referenced it over this series that we're talking about this, uh, this morning, continuing this morning. But in chapter 19, verses 6 through 8, we have this record of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right at the very end, when God is culminating human history, when he's retrieving his people and bringing them unto himself, and, unto himself, and he's releasing all the goodness that he's planned for us. And it says this, then I heard... John has a vision, and it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, re- reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready, and it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Last week, as we're talking through this series on Ready, we talked about having our clothing washed and Ready? Dressed and ready. Today we're going to talk about ready to eat. And I just think it's amazing that we serve this God that when he, when he, when he brings it all to pass, when he wraps it all up and he's, he's, he's releasing his goodness on the earth, when we're living in the reality of what he intended in the beginning, he says, listen, I'm going to redeem even that food thing. He's inviting us to a, a wedding meal. And it's not the wedding supper of lamb, depending on whether you like lamb, you might get excited about that or not. How many of you are lamb lovers? How many of you are like, lamb smells funky and I don't know if I can eat it? I'm kind of halfway in between. Because lamb does smell pretty funky. But sometimes it's really good. But anyways, it's not the wedding supper of lamb, it's wedding supper of the lamb. Jesus, in, in gathering his bride, is inviting us to a wedding meal. How many of you are excited for a, a buffet that God puts on? That's going to be some kind of thing. If you're from Buffalo, it probably includes chicken wings and pizza. Right? I mean, of course, right? Jesus knows his good food. Uh, but we serve this God that draws us in, that he brings his bride in with a celebration of foo- uh, that includes food. This week we're going to talk about what food means, but Jesus had a lot to say about food. You can read it, it's all throughout Scripture. Scripture has a lot to say about it, Jesus has a lot. Just a couple highlights. First this, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, here's what it says. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Jesus was talking with the religious leaders of the day, and they were criticizing him because his disciples ate without washing their hands. And now, there was, not, there was no such thing as germ theory then, but they had been instructed by God in the law to make sure that they washed their hands before they ate. And they were concerned that if they ate with unwashed hands, that it would somehow contaminate them or defile them. And Jesus said, no, understand it's not what goes in physically, the food that goes in, but what comes out of the heart, what matters spiritually, what comes out of the mouth that determines our spiritual state. In other words, he's saying there's something about those mindsets that lead to thoughts, that lead to words, that has something to do with our condition before the Lord. See, Scripture talks about food as a metaphor. Jesus said this in John chapter 6, verse 35, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But that was a hard saying for many people to hear. In fact, he kind of doubled down on that saying a little bit later in the chapter, in verse 53, Jesus said to them, for truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you'll have no life in you. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you have given your lives to Christ? You've come to Christ. How many of you woke up physically hungry this morning or thirsty? Right? Jesus wasn't talking about a physical hunger or a physical thirst. He's talking about a spiritual hunger and a spiritual thirst. And when he's saying, truly, truly, my body, or unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you'll have no life in you, he's talking about a spiritual process whereby he becomes what we consume. Now, it's hard for unspiritual people to understand this. The the people that were there had a hard time understanding this. They're like, "You, you want us to eat you? Like real, he said, Jesus actually said, my flesh is real food. They're like, wait, 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 hold on, what, what are you talking about? He's saying, no, real spiritual food. In fact, many of the disciples didn't understand it. It was so hard for them to understand. Scripture says his disciples, not the religious leaders, his disciples walked away from him because of what he had to say. But Jesus was highlighting how food is a metaphor for what we experience in our lives Jesus, in his conversation with the devil as the devil was tempting him, said this. He was quoting Moses. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what Jesus is saying is, listen, my presence and my word are real nourishment for your soul. That unless we partake of his presence and of his word, unless we consume it and it becomes part of who we are, whether it brings nourishment, whether or not it brings nourishment to us matters to our spiritual condition. So what does it look like to feed on Jesus? I just want to talk about it briefly for a couple minutes this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is writing to a Corinthian church that is in need of instruction he's heard some reports that things are going not so well there he actually has some questions that they've asked him about what they should do in their circumstances and the reason was this this was a church that was highly spiritually gifted it was a young church but it was a highly spiritually gifted church God had by his spirit gifted them incredibly with spiritual gifts And yet there was a a sense that these spiritual gifts were highlighted and did not produce the maturity in the believer that God would have wanted for this church. God was intending for them to grow. That's why Paul wrote them the scripture. But what this also tells me is this, that the manifestation of the spiritual gifts among a people does not equal maturity. That God is gracious to even use the broken things of our lives to use broken people. How many of you are glad that God didn't wait till you were perfect to give you spiritual gifts? I'm super glad for this. But we have a church here that is functioning very highly in spiritual gifts, but is lacking in maturity. Some of the things that they were struggling with in their city was this. The city was a very cosmopolitan city. It wasn't a very learned city. It wasn't a city of university, but it was a city that was very uh, wrapped up in commerce. And the reason why is that Corinth was situated on an isthmus that was connecting two seas. So anything that came from like Italy and the West could go through Corinth and then go to the East and to Turkey and the rest of the Middle East. And it was on an isthmus that was so narrow that they actually built a road that you could drag small ships over. You could save a bunch of time from sailing around Greece By just going over this road. And if you couldn't drag your ship over, if your ship was too big, you could unload it and there was a a really well paved road to move your goods from one side to the other. So it was a cosmopolitan city in terms of commerce. But it was also a city that was very much wrapped up in the worship of goddesses and gods, but specifically a goddess that required sexual immorality to worship her. There were 1,000 temple prostitutes, historians say that were dedicated to the worship of this goddess. So it was a a cosmopolitan city. It was a city that was wrapped up in worship that had a lot to do with sexual morality. And they were struggling with some of those ideas in this city. And so Paul writes to them, and he writes them in chapter three, he says this. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. Wait a minute. Pastor Josh, you're telling me they were very much full of spiritual gifts, yet Paul couldn't talk to them as spiritual people. Maybe they've grown, but we'll see that he says not. He said, I had to talk as though you belonged to the world or though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger and you still aren't ready. Talk about a burn, right? Like you're, you're a little kid and you still are a little kid. And so Paul's writing to them and he kind of breaks it out for them and starting in verse three, he says, for you're still controlled by your sinful nature. You're jealous of one another and you quarrel with one another? Doesn't that prove you're controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like the people of the world? When one of you says, I'm a follower of Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, aren't you acting just like the people of the world? See, Paul Paul is writing to a church that's been divided. And they think that their spiritual pedigree, who they listen to, who they consider their spiritual father or mother, matters more than the fact that Jesus Christ has set them free. And in it, they are acting like children. And Paul is highlighting this. He says, after all, who's Apollos and who's Peter? Or sorry, who's Paul? We're only God's servants through whom you believed the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts, Apollo watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is God makes the seed grow. We're gonna talk about this in a minute. God has intended us for growth. See, here's the truth about spiritual eating. We all eat, right? Whether you like food or not, you are here because you eat physically, right? Yes, okay. My guess is if you're here, you've probably had some type of food sustenance in the last 40 days. But the truth is this, spiritually we all eat as well. The question is, or, and we all eat, and what, the, what our food is spiritually is this, it's the thoughts and the mindsets of our lives that nourish us. The word of God or another thought or mindset, they all provide some type of nourishment to us. The real question is not, are we being nourished? The question is this, are we eating well or are we eating poorly? Most of us know what eating poorly physically looks like, right? If you could name your top five really healthy things that you eat, some of you might struggle when you get to three or four. But if you could name the top five things that you eat that are not good for you, almost all of us can name, we got that list. It just rolls right in our head, right? Like we, we're from Buffalo, so again, we pizza and chicken wings, like they must be the Lord's food, but they're also probably the worst thing you can put in your body. I know, I know, pizza has the four food groups, right? Grains and in the sauce you have the vegetables and the cheese. You have your dairy and you have the meat and the pepper, the protein and the pepperoni, right? But it doesn't count. Like, that's just an excuse. And chicken wings, like, really? Like, the fattiest part of the chicken, deep fried in oil, rolled in butter. Hot sauce is sort of a vegetable, right? It's made from vegetables, but rolled in butter, and then dipped in cheese, rotten cheese, right? Well, no, I only use ranch. Well, that's no, that's no better, right? So we can name the things that don't nourish us well physically, but what about the things that don't nourish us well spiritually? There's an all different kinds of way to have poor eating habits spiritually. First of all, we can, eat uns- we can be unspiritual, Paul says, you are, you are, you are, I had to speak to you like unspiritual people. Why? Because you, you, you just eat junk all the time. When we are consumed with things other than the Lord in our thoughts and our mindsets, and those are the things that we put in front of us, we are eating unspiritually, but it has a spiritual effect on us, right? We don't live duly." It's not like there's, oh, like if I eat enough spiritual things, I can have this other stuff and it'll balance out. The truth is this, anything that we eat that's, uh, that's, that's not of God does affect us spiritually. Those mindsets affect us. We might eat a mixed diet, like eating good all day and binging at night. Same thing spiritually. You can't eat good all day and then fill yourself up with junk and expect to have good results from it. Or maybe we're eating and we're just not hungry at all. Right? We, we, how many, I was blessed. I said this in the early service and uh, this person was here, we'll just say that, and they didn't correct me afterwards, so I think I'm okay to share it again. There's somebody that I live with that likes to eat lunch at three 3.30 in the afternoon. And when it comes time to eat dinner, which most of the time in my house I cook, and I'm cooking like really good, really healthy, really tasty, you know, widespread. It's not like, hey, here's some chicken nuggets and french fries. Like, I'm talking like great food. But when we go to eat dinner at 5.30, 6 o'clock at night, and you've eaten an hour, hour and a half before that, how many of you know sometimes you're just not hungry? Right? Now, I don't understand that. I'm just saying other people in my life live that way. And they get to that place where there's a, a, a beautiful banquet in front of you, and you just don't even know what to do with it. It's like my, my cousins got married a few years ago. And I couldn't tell you what we had for dinner. Although I'm sure it was delicious. But I could tell you what we had for appetizers. Because I filled up on those. I didn't care about dinner. Because it was the greatest appetizer spread I have ever seen for a wedding ever. I'm talking like, how many of you know the, the Italians got the appetizer game on lockdown, right? Right? And they, this was everything you could ever want in an Italian appetizer spread. I'm talking everything from meats and cheeses and vegetables and marinated things and crunchy things and soft things and salty things and sweet. I mean, it's like. <laughs> and when I got to dinner, I was like, okay, Whatever. Like, it's the same process. Sometimes we are so filled with other stuff spiritually that when we get to a place where God wants to give us his word, he wants to pour out healthy stuff for us, we could care less. We don't have any hunger for it. We don't desire it. And so when, we, when, it, when the Lord's like, hey, would you spend some time with me? Hey, here's some word. It doesn't sink in. It doesn't seep in. We don't approach him with any kind of hunger because we're so satisfied with garbage or what we've eaten ahead of time. Now I'm not saying don't read your Bible all week so that when you get to church on Sunday the message sounds really good. That's not what I'm saying. Because the truth is this, when we eat healthy stuff, we develop a taste for it. Right? I've been eating fairly clean. My wife and I went on a date last night and I just threw it out the window. But I've been eating fairly clean lately. And how many, how many of you know that when you eat fairly clean, when, like you eat natural stuff, whole stuff, and like grilled vegetables take on a whole nother world. You know, that that first time that you tasted that ice cream that you like, it was like angels saying, ah. But if you eat healthy stuff, you can have that same experience with grilled vegetables. You're like, no, you can't. No, I'm telling you, you can. What you have a taste for grows. And the truth is this, God wants to develop our taste for him so that we're hungry for the things of God. That the, the artificial garbage doesn't satisfy us anymore. Or maybe we have a poor eating habits in this. We eat a pantry diet. I don't know what's in your pantry. I I stock some decent stuff. There's some, you know, healthy beans and some vegetables and things like that. But most of the stuff in my pantry, the the shelf-stable stuff, is garbage, right? Like cakes and brownies and, like, white pasta. Like, it's all tasty, but it's not necessarily healthy. Macaroni and cheese. You know what I'm talking about? If you got cheese that can sit in your cupboard for three years and you can pull it out and and it's still doing good, it's probably not Very healthy. It's aged, yeah. Usually, the stuff that's aged need to be aged in like a cave or in a like a controlled environment. Anyways, but here's here like that's the natural picture. But look at the spiritual picture. Oftentimes, we eat a pantry diet by going back to the things from our lives before that are shelf stable that we lock away and we go back to and feed on them when we're not getting what we need from God. What do I mean by that? We eat a pantry diet of offense. Jesus has dealt with the offense. He's called us. He's unoffended with us. He's forgiven us. But yet, sometimes we go back to those old mindsets and we feed on them and they become life to us. But how many of you know offense brings death? Or maybe we eat a pantry diet of the, the orphan. Before we came to Christ, we were orphans, we were far away, he's brought us into his family, he's given us the spirit of adoption, but sometimes we go back to that old orphan mindset and we, we, we consume that and that brings us death in our lives. Or maybe uh, it's bitterness, or maybe it's abuse. We go back to these old, we know what it is to eat the good stuff, but we go back to the garbage because we haven't dealt with it, we haven't emptied our pantry of it, we haven't developed a taste for only the good stuff. Christ has set us free and provided us a better way to live, and he's provided us with better food. Paul says it this way. Some of us eat an infant diet. How many of you know that infants need milk, right? They can survive off it, and they don't need anything else. In fact, you really shouldn't give infants the good stuff, like milk, cheese, sorry, cheese, uh, meat, other stuff. You you really got to, like, wait until they're ready for it, but at some point, the milk becomes not enough, and you need to give them solid food. Now, just so you're aware, I did feed my son, at eight weeks old, a donut, like donut cream, and he survived, so my wife found out very, very quickly, because babies have a very unique baby smell, and she walked by, and she was like, did you give him donut? Like, how did you know? But at some point you have to transition into other healthy, solid food. None of you live on a diet of milk alone. As adults, you have to eat something else. And God is calling us to maturity to eat something different. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14 says this, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles and oracles of God. You need Milk, not solid food. For anyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid foods is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. God is calling us to mature. The scripture that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, What's important is that God makes the seed grow. You and I were made to grow into maturity with God. But Paul says here, you're not ready and you're still not ready. What are the indicators that we're not ready? Or that we're spiritually immature? The indicators that Paul talks about throughout most of the beginning of Corinthians is what he describes here, being controlled by our sinful nature. Just outright sin. When we would rather do what we know, what we want to do, rather than we know what we ought to do in Christ... We're being controlled by our sinful nature. We're not living by the Spirit. We're immature. What's another indicator of spiritual immaturity, spiritual feeding that's immature? Jealousy and fighting. Paul says you, you are jealous of one another and you quarrel with one another. There's divisions among you, among us. Now what does that look like? I believe that when we are immature, we're susceptible to divisive spirits. In the world right now, there are divisive spiritual forces that are looking to bring destruction to our lives by dividing people. And I want to name a few of them today because I think it's important for us to understand not only what we're up against, but how we start to feed on Christ, and it starts to put a tamp on these things as the people of God. The first is this, it's a religious spirit. A religious spirit looks to divide people. And not just, oh, that's your denomination, this is my denomination, But a religious spirit cuts into the church, literally the church in Corinth, and starts to divide the people among whom they follow, who they like best. And they start to take their eyes off of Jesus, the one who grows them, and put their eyes on people. A religious spirit takes our eyes off the finished work of Christ and puts it on imperfect people. Now, are imperfect people worthy to be followed? Yes. Paul said very clearly, follow me as I follow Christ, right? Is it okay to follow people as they follow Christ? Absolutely. What's the point? The point is that they're, they're teaching us to follow Christ by their example. They're not saying follow me to follow me. They're saying follow me as I follow Christ. But a religious spirit would get us to just focus our heart and attention on certain factions. It divides us. Another spirit that lo- that's looking to divide in this world right now is a political spirit. We live in a time where Christians are defaming other Christians because of their political beliefs and who they're going to vote for. And it's absolutely a work of the enemy in the earth. He's looking to divide the church based on who we put our hope in politically. The truth is this, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be the people that stand up and not say, vote for this guy, or vote for this guy, or don't vote for this guy, or don't vote for this guy. We should be the people of God who stand up and say, Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. He is the one who's seated on the throne. After the election in November, he will still be seated on the throne, and he's calling you in the midst of the world that looks wants you to look at people for your salvation to look to him for salvation. We ought to be the, but but what is this, this spirit is looking to divide the church, and we cannot let it happen, but if we are immature, we will be wrapped up by these things. Another spirit that's looking to divide is the spirit of divorce. I believe that the enemy has always been after marriage, because God instituted marriage in the very beginning. In fact, it was God's plan that people come together and be married and leave father and mother and the two become one and they populate the earth and they fill the earth and they subdue the earth and they rule over it. They extend his kingdom through the whole earth. That's God's plan. But Satan knows that he can't face God one-on-one, right? Satan's not going to get into the octagon with God because he's defeated before he even gets in the octagon. It's not even a fight. So where does Satan fight? Satan fights with human beings. His war is with us. That's why scripture says we don't war against flesh and blood. He's warring against us and one of the ways he wars against us and has from the very beginning is to divide people. He wants people to not be one in their marriages. And I've seen marriages be attacked over and over and over again, but I've never seen it like I've seen it right now. There is a spirit of divorce that is wreaking havoc all throughout even the church to bring division in. And so we entertain some of that old living, that bitterness or that anger. We, we think we've dealt with it, but we leave it on the shelf. And at some point, we just start to entertain and feed ourselves with it. And that spirit that we cooperate with comes in, and it brings brokenness because we're feeding on it. And God's saying, listen, would you feed on me? Because if we recognize that we have been uh, filled by the Spirit of God and forgiven by Christ, then certainly we can become one in God in our marriages. But it's not just a spirit of divorce in marriage. It's also a spirit of divorce in church. I've seen people leaving their fellowships over things that ought not to divide people because the enemy wants to destroy the church because he knows that the church and the family are those places that God has designed to bring forth his kingdom into the earth. It's a sign of our immaturity when we are susceptible to these things. He says you're susceptible when you're living like people of the world. You're immature when you're a follower of one and not the other. But the truth and the great news is this. God intends for you and I to grow. In fact, God has all we need about, all we need to grow. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 21 through 23 say this. So don't boast about following a particular human leader. Paul's kind of summing up what he said about these divisions. Listen, for everything belongs to you. See, those spirits that look to divide, those things, the enemy, is he's trying to destroy us and keep us immature, tries to keep us focused in one place or the other so we don't see what's available to us in God. And Paul says this, everything belongs to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life or death or the present and the future. He's saying, listen, you don't have to worry. If you come to me, I will provide all these things for you. I'll provide good food for you to eat. Whatever Apollos has, you can have. Whatever Paul has, you can have. Whatever Peter has, you can have. Whatever the world has, you can have. Whatever life or death, present or future has for you, you don't have to worry. You have it all in me. Everything belongs to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. We don't have to fight to get what we want or what we need. God has made a way for it. Debbie, if you come and just play for us, what does good eating look like? Spiritually, what does good eating look like? What does it look like to partake of everything that's available to us? Paul in 1 Corinthians, in the beginning of the book, kind of lays it out. In chapter 1, verse 24, he says, But those who are called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He says, the power and the presence in the word of God is what we need to live on. That's good eating. Paul says it this way to the Colossians. Verse 3, chapter chapter 3, verse 16. He said, let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. In the English Standard Version it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Think about it this way. Think about the, the richest, most satisfying meal you could eat. Maybe you've had it sometime in your life. Maybe for you it's like some kind of pot roast. Right? I, I can't think of something more rich than a really good pot roast with great gravy and potatoes, some carrots, and some King's Hawaiian rolls with a lot of butter on them. You follow me. Maybe a piece of pie when you're done. And not fruit pie, but like pecan pie. How many of you would say that's a pretty rich meal right there? Think, think about that, that feeling as you like push away from the table. Hopefully push away from the table. You have enough energy to push away. You're like, that was rich. That was satisfying. God has called for us to live with him that way. For his word to be satisfying to us. That when we spend time with him, that his, that his presence is, whether it's alone or corporately, because these books were written to the church. We tend to make it very individual, but God's saying, I'm saying this to my church. That we find our satisfaction spiritually in him. And that it produces more hunger. How many of you know you eat turkey dinner at like two in the afternoon, whatever your family does, or maybe you're weird and you do it at 11, I don't know. But by dinner time, you want more turkey dinner, right? Right? Like, let's pull out the sandwiches, let's, because the rich stuff makes a heart and a hunger for more rich stuff. And he's developing the taste of his people, that his word, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he says this, in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. talking about his presence. Let's be a group of people that worship him with all we've got and that are filled with his word. I believe that God is bringing about a revival in his people. And it's a revival of hunger. And it starts in us individually, but it really is a corporate hunger. What would it look like for all of the people of God to be so hungry for his word and so hungry for his presence. How many of you know God satisfies the hunger of the truly hungry? We don't come to him and say, God, I'm really hungry for you, and he says, ah, next week. He delights in satisfying the hunger of his people. And I believe he's bringing us as his church to a time where our hunger for him is like no other time. We've seen what it looks like in the world before, when, when God's people experience revival, what happens? It's not just that people start to jump around and hoot and holler and roll around in church. It's not just that the churches become full. When God produces a divine hunger in his people and his people respond to it, they grow into maturity. They don't just have this flash in the pan of spiritual gifts, but they grow to maturity in such a way that it bursts out of the doors of the church. If you read about what happened in the revival just a few uh, miles from here in Rochester, New York, the entire society changed. Bars were shut down. because there was Not because somebody said, hey, you should shut the bars down. It's because nobody wanted to drink because they were so satisfied with God. I believe he's calling us as his people to not settle for anything else. And if we will meet him with the hunger that we have right now, he'll start to give us a taste for the real. He'll start to produce a hunger in us like we've never known before for his word and for his presence. And I believe that it will change us. It will grow us into maturity and he'll show us the all things that we have available in him. If you're hungry like that or you want to be hungry like that, you want to say yes to that stirring within you. You want to be ready to eat and to consume the word and the presence of God like never before. Would you just stand as a mark of your desire for the Lord this morning, this afternoon? Jesus, we thank you that because of what you have done, because you are causing the seed to grow, that everything, and because we belong to you, that everything belongs to us. Because you belong to God, our Father. And so we ask that you would produce a divine hunger in us to make us ready to eat the things that you have for us. That we would desire to consume your word. We would desire to consume your presence like never before. That we would become hungry only for the things that satisfy. And that our our desire and our taste for the things of this world would pass away, that you would grow us into maturity by your spirit and your word. May your people become ravenous and only satisfied by your word and your presence. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless you as you go. I pray that you become more hungry and more hungry. And more hungry and more hungry for the word and the presence of God. Jake.